Now, we are in a book series, and that series is on the book of Hosea, and Hosea is a remarkable book. We said last week, just a couple of quotes, uh, a man named James Montgomery Boyce, who is now with uh, the Lord, said, it is the second greatest story in all of the Bible. Now, a lot of this is going to depend on how it is that we view ourselves. Anytime you read a story in the scriptures, I would encourage you, put yourself as one of the characters in the story. So as you're reading a narrative, as it's explaining a a historical account, imagine who you would be in that account. Put yourself in several different people. Imagine you were David faced with a decision. Imagine you were Ruth. Imagine you were whoever it may be. And in this one in particular, it will be um, good for us to imagine. But I'll bet you that for most of us, the first person we would not imagine that we are is Gomer. Most of us will be able to easily identify with, run to, what it might have felt like to be Hosea. But for today, would you try and emotionally put yourself in the position of several of the characters that are in here? So, for example, just one of the lovers that Gomer has, what would it be like to be that person just using someone else? What would it be like to be Gomer herself? Would you feel so unworthy, so unlovable that you're willing to sell yourself because you just didn't think that you would ever get somebody who would actually value you for you, but only what it is that you could give? Do imagine that you are Hosea, giving yourself over and over, mind, body, soul, prayers, all of it, pouring yourself out into another person who will receive it, for a moment, but never fully appreciate it, and then assume that either it's going to run out or that it's not enough, and so I must go to someone else to find what it is that I'm looking for. But one last one. Imagine you were one of their kids. What would it have been like to be the children where you know you've got a mother that is acting out of pain, shame, etc. You've got a father who, by all accounts, surely looks like a fool. When he continues to throw himself out there, continue to to pour himself, and and yet she's never going to fully respond. What would it have been like to have been one of those children? I wonder what they heard on the playground. Put yourself in the shoes of, of the story. We said last week that we all question God's love, and we said that Hosea is simply a book about God's love. The book of Hosea, according to one theologian, I like this quote, was designed to convince the Israelites that they needed to repent and to turn to their long-suffering God so that judgment may be averted. They need to know that God loved them, hear this, in spite of their unfaithfulness. Now, if we don't understand this book in its original context first, it was written by God to the people of Israel. It was God's message he's trying to get across to them. It was not primarily written to you and me right now. It is applicable to us, but it was written first and foremost to the people of Israel so that they might hear, see, turn, and repent and move towards their God. Now, the message is timeless. And so in that sense, yes, of course, it's written directly to you and me. But we've got to ask ourselves first, what did it mean to the people of Israel? Love is experienced through word and in deed. 
Love is experienced by us. It is embraced by us. It is, um, we don't get love until it is that we experience it. And the only way we're going to truly experience it is when we see it and when we feel it. Love is hard to see without words. Some of you grew up with parents who uh, never really said the words, I love you. Maybe your mom did. Mom probably said it often. May have had a father that just never could get those words out of his mouth. Now, you got a chance to see it in ways that he would provide, et cetera, but you never got to hear the words themselves. A good friend of mine never heard those words from their father until their wedding day. And right before they were getting ready to walk out the door, father and son together, right before they're getting ready to walk out, his father rather sheepishly just turns to his son, looks down, he says, boy, I want you to know I love you. Now, what kind of condition do you think the son was walking out in front of the crowd? And every woman in the audience thought, this is so sweet. <laughs> He's so overwhelmed at just the thought of the doors opening. And his father just told him for the first time that he ever loved him. It is hard to see. Actions, in many ways, we may think that we are sending that message to others. We may think that you ought to just be able to see it by the way that I, that, that I work, the way that I do, etc., and probably, yes, we miss many of the ways that people love us when it's just hard to see without the words. I would encourage you, tell the people that are around you that you love, tell them you love them. I know it may be awkward. You may have children at that age in life when you say those words, ah, oh, dad, it's all right, embarrass them anyway. Get in the habit of getting the words out of your mouth. I love you. And you do that enough times over the years. And that water going over those stones underneath eventually smooths it out. And eventually your son or daughter is going to say, I know you do. Would it be one of the greatest compliments to you and me if we were to tell our children, I love you, and to go, Dad, I know you tell me that every day. What a great compliment. It's hard to see without words, but love is hard to feel without deeds. You may have grown up in a family that's on the opposite end of the spectrum. You may be in that family right now. You may be leading the charge in that family right now where you say it a whole lot. The words come out of your mouth on a consistent basis, but yet the actions don't seem to follow up and justify it. In other words, it may be that there's never really a time in which you sense that this person is actually sacrificing something for you. And the words come out of their mouth with regularity and consistency, and that is a good thing to have come out of your mouth. But if there's not action behind it, it's going to be really, really difficult to trust the words of the person. You see what I'm getting at? Love is experienced by people when it is both said and when it is both done. When there's word and deed, then is when we really fully experience what love is. This is exactly what God does for us. Now, many of us today have a problem. We don't believe God. Not just one of us, not just two of us, many of us here today 
have a problem. We don't believe God. We don't take him at his word. We have read over and over and over and over again that he loves us, but it hasn't really sunk in past this all the way to the depths of here. Some of us, when we read the word, we say, we read and say, well, I know that's true of everybody else, but it's not true of me. If we are going to experience the love of God, then I would suggest we have got to pray that God will both open our eyes so that we may see, and he would open our ears so that we may hear. How does God love you? Take a look around. Who has he put you with? What has he provided for you? Are your most basic needs taken care of? But the ultimate way that God has both shown and told you that he loves you is that cross right behind me. There's nothing that screams louder than that right there. If you're physically able, would you stand as we read just the third chapter? Now, we're going to make our way through the, the, uh, the second chapter, but just uh, stand as we read the third chapter of uh, Hosea. Reading this uh, once again in NIV. The Lord said to me, go, show your love to your wife again, though she is loved by another man and is an adulteress. Love her as the Lord loves the Israelites, though they turn to other gods and love the sacred raisin cakes. So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver, about a homer and a lethic of barley. Then I told her, you are to live with me many days. You must not be a prostitute or be intimate with any man, and I will behave the same way toward you. For the Israelites will live many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or sacred stones without ephod or household gods. Afterward, the Israelites will return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. They will come trembling to the Lord to his blessing in the last days. You may be seated. Now, these are the instructions that we just read from uh, Hosea. Chapters 2 and chapter 3 could be divided like this. Not the only way we could divide them. It's the way we'll divide it this morning. But in chapter 2, in the first 13 verses, we see a judgment speech. The judgment speech starts out like this. Rebuke your mother, rebuke her, for she is not my wife and I am not her husband. Let her remove the adulterous look from her face and the unfaithfulness from between her breasts. Now, what is this passage getting at? God is telling Hosea to get the children to go and to rebuke the mother, but God is really, in essence, telling Hosea to go to the leaders of Israel, the religious leaders, and to rebuke them. And he's trying to get across to the leaders of there, you've really missed the heart of what this whole thing is about. Now, the word rebuke is the word that would be used for challenge in court. So in other words, it's not just this simple, nice little, hey, you know, I just wanted to bring your attention if you're aware. It's not that. It is coming, and much in the way that Nathan did with David, a finger in the face. Not for the purpose of heaping on guilt and shame, but for the purpose of clarity. I want to make sure that you understand what the charge is. This is how they would go about it in court. The children were to say to the mother, in essence, um, come back. The, 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 the route that you're going in life, mom, 
is not a good route. Can I just bring a personal application in real quick? Again, what does it mean to the original audience? That's where we got to start first, and then we can branch out. How about you? How good are you with rebukes? At both giving them and receiving them. When you see a brother and sister, I'm not talking about every little sin. If you go around rebuking everyone for everything, you're going to be so annoying, and you're going to have no friends whatsoever. Okay, God doesn't do that with us, so don't do it to others. However, when a time comes for you to genuinely, truly rebuke someone because the direction of their life is that they're headed, it, it is headed towards destruction. How good are you at rebukes? Or are you really good at saying words that might be a rebuke, but just saying them to somebody else? This over here is constructive. And you may actually wound a friend, but the Scripture says faithful are the wounds of a friend. This over here is a different thing. It's destructive. It's called gossip. This is not good. This is loving. Now, we can do this in a very unloving uh, fashion. We, we, we can do it by, um, uh, uh, by unnecessarily wounding. We can do it by being rude. Uh, we can do it by being proud and arrogant. Uh, but when this is done rightly, God's blessing resides here. Hear me. Never, ever, ever will there be God's blessing right here. Ever. Get in the habit of going directly to people rather than just talking about people. See, this is where I think it would have been miserable to, to, to be a child of Gomer. Can you imagine what the kids had to deal with as it pertains to gossip? Rebuke your mother, rebuke her, for she is not my wife. I am not her husband. Now, the the, the jewelry that he is referring to at the end of verse 2 is very likely jewelry that was worn specifically um, so that people would be able to readily identify prostitutes there. So this jewelry um, would be uh, hung in such a fashion it would draw attention um, uh, to them and, and let folks know, um, I am available. Now here's the comparison that God is making. You, my children, Israel, have me for a husband, and yet you treat me as if I'm not your husband. You don't come after me. You don't respond to me. You are going somewhere else. In fact, you are making it aware that you are going somewhere else. You're, in fact, drawing attention saying, hey, I'm available. Oh, what other God are you seeking that you think is going to provide for you in the same kind of ways that I provide for you? Not only was she deceived in the process, lured in the process by someone else who was manipulating, etc., she was actively pursuing opportunity to get away from her husband in order to be with other men. Sound like God's people? How about the one more famous hymns? There's written, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Otherwise, verse 3, I will strip her naked and make her as bare as on the day she was born. I will make her like a desert, turn her into the parched land, and slay her with thirst. 
What he's saying here is this. I am going to, in essence, dry up every opportunity that she goes. She is going to thirst, and she is never going to ever be satisfied based on the direction that she's going. Can I give you an insight into something to pray? For whatever loved one you have, it could be a spouse, it could be a child, it could be a friend, it could be a parent, whatever it may be. For someone that you love dearly, and you know that they are pursuing a direction that's going to be destructive in life, and you've been faithful to confront, you've been faithful to to draw attention to, the path you're headed is not a good one, and they continue to ignore you. Here's something to pray. God, dry them up. May they never be satisfied in the direction they're going. May it always be bitter in taste. Why? Because the worst thing in the world is to go somewhere and to be for a short period of time gratified, deceived into thinking, oh, this finally is what my heart is longing for. I will not show my love to her children because they are the children of adultery. For a season, there's going to be a time in which he is not going to put on display his love for them. Their mother has been unfaithful. She has conceived them in disgrace. She said, I will go after my lovers who give me my food and my water, my wool and my linen, my olive oil and my drink. She again is under the mindset, under the deception that when she pursues these other men, if she will just give her body to other men that in return, they are going to provide for her. They are going to show her love. Now, what does God do? Therefore, I will block her path with thorn bushes. I will wall her in so that she cannot find her way. Now, what it sounds like on the front end, doesn't it, is God saying, that's it, I'm done. I mean, I'm going to punish them. I'm going to send them to their room. I don't want them to talk to me anymore. I'm going to make life so miserable. I'm taking away the Nintendo. I'm taking away the Xbox. I'm taking away the cell phone. I'm going to make it so miserable that they can just stew over there and they can just think about how bad they are. Is that what God's doing? No, God is saying this. I'm going to actually provide protection for you while you are pursuing someone else. While you are going away, in the midst of you running away from me, believing that somebody else is going to provide something for your soul that you're so desperately longing for, I'm going to provide some protection around you so that you are not consumed, overwhelmed, killed in the process, and I'm going to make it such that you finally have an opportunity to fall flat on your face, you are parched, you're filthy, and all you can do is just look up. God has no interest in punishing them for the sake of punishment. That's not going to make him feel better. It might make me feel better for a moment when I do that with my kids. It's not what God does. God provides some protection so that they are not fully consumed in the process. And he doesn't let them get satisfied going in this direction. Look at this. She will chase after her lovers, but not catch them. She will look for them, but not find them. She will say, I will go back to my husband as at first, for, uh, for then I was, uh, I was better off than now. This is so great. This is so me. She goes this direction, 
nobody's home. This direction, nobody's there. This direction, nobody's there. And probably what we could actually read is this. When it says that she's not found them, it actually might mean that they are, they are present. They are with them. They're saying, I'm done with you. I no longer have use for you. And so she doesn't find a home. She doesn't find a permanent residence there. And then she says, huh, nothing there, nothing there, nothing there, nothing there. Well, I guess I'll go back to Hosea. Because at least Hosea provided for me. Not a, oh my goodness, I pursued fame and fortune. I, I pursued opportunity. I, I thought that this would provide. Never any of that for the people. It's just, well, I know God will provide. I might as well go back to him. Now, what if you are Hosea? What if you are Hosea who has genuinely, sincerely loved your bride and, and, and not loved your bride as a project? Not loved your bride in a way that says, you know what, I'm just going to do it. I'm just going to love her. Just, oh, I love her. I love giving. I love talking. I love sharing. I love being in her presence. I love her mind, body, soul, spirit. Everything about her, I love. Oh, I see the flaws. Just like she sees mine. I, but man, I love Gomer. And so how does Gomer come home? Well, you're here. She has not acknowledged that I was the one who gave her the grain, the new wine and oil, who lavished on her the silver and the gold, which they used for Baal. All the things that God had provided for them, they took and they made sacrifices over to the foreign gods, believing that the foreign gods had taken part in helping to provide for them the blessings. Therefore, I will take away my grain when it ripens and my new wine when it is ready. I will take back my wheat and my linen intended to cover her naked body. I will take away my covering over her so that she will for a moment feel the weight of her shame. She will be exposed Meaning that our sin, the other gods, small g, that we pursue, when we continue to pursue them over and over and over again, when we continue to run after them, believing that they will provide for us what God can, can only provide, God may get to that place where he disciplines us and he says, I'm going to remove my covering over you and I'm going to expose you. And folks are going to get a chance to look in and to see. They're going to see the direction that you're moving in. Your sin will be seen by all. And it might be humiliating for many of us. For what purpose? So that God can say, see there, that's what I do with people who don't pursue me. No. So that you will get to the place where you realize nobody, I, I can count on no one or no thing. Only God himself can I count on. So now I will expose her lewdness before the eyes of her lovers. No one will take her out of my hands. 
I will stop all her celebrations, her yearly festivals, her new moons, her Sabbath days, all her appointed festivals. I will ruin her vines and her fig trees, which she said were her, her pay from her lovers. I will make them a thicket and wild animals will devour them. I will punish her for the days she burned incense to the bales. She uh, decked herself with rings and jewelry and went after her lovers. But me, she forgot, declares the Lord. If we were to end the passage right here, if Hosea were to get the end of the revelation from God right here, we'd say, yep, makes a whole lot of sense. That's the way that I would respond. But then, (laughs) then we have a salvation speech. Beginning in verse 14. Therefore, I am now going to allure her. I will lead her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. There I will give her back her vineyards and make the valley of Accor the doors of hope. And there she will respond as in the days of her youth, as in the days that she came up out of Egypt. In that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband You will no longer call me my master. What I'm going to do with her, after all of the ways that she abandons it, she moves, she goes out, what I'm going to do is I'm going to chase her down. I'm going to pursue her. I'm going to run faster than her. I'm going to capture her. I'm then going to lead her out into the wilderness, and I'm going to speak tenderly with her. I'm going to woo her. I'm going to charm her. I'm going to speak to her in such a way that it's honoring and respect. I'm not going to remind her of all of her sin. I'm going to confront originally. I'm going to, I'm actually going to rebuke in there. But man, once I've confronted, once I'm with her, I'm just going to remind her of how good it is to be with her. Now, what human does this? Is it responding to her in this way simply because she has said, oh my goodness, all the ways that you love me, I thank you so much. And it's this great Hallmark movie moment, Christmas time, we can run it over and over again. Here's the the kiss at the end of the movie, it's all good. Boy gets girl, boy loses girl, boy gets girl again. It's not that story. Who, only God does this. Have you experienced this love? Have you come to grips with the reality of how much you have pursued other gods at the expense of God himself? Have you looked and seen how much hope you place in your finances rather than in the person of the Lord? Have you seen how much it is that you're pursuing your own personal happiness at the expense of the kingdom? Have you seen the burden that you've placed on your spouse asking them to fulfill all of your needs rather than going to the Lord? Have you looked at your paltry and pathetic attempt to pursue God? What does he do? He woos you. He speaks tenderly to you. He calls you. I will remove the names of Baals from her lips. She no longer will be 
Uh, will their names be invoked? In that day, I will make a covenant for them with the beasts of the field, the birds of the sky, and the creatures that move along the ground. Bow and sword and battle I will abolish from the land so that all may lie down in safety. I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you in righteousness and justice and love and in companion. Now, I waited to read that verse to connect it back to what it says in verse 16. You will no longer call me my master. You will call me husband. What does the relationship look like between God and his people? What did it look like between God and Israel, God and Judah? And what does it look like with God and the church? More specifically, what does it look like with you? God is giving us this picture for a very intentional reason. And that is that we might see ourselves as Gomer. That we might see ourselves as the one who walks off, who wanders off, who pursues every other God besides the one that God, the, the, the true God of the universe. And God pursues us in the process. And what does he want us to do? To come back and to say, what is thy bidding my master? To come before him, to bow down and to say, whatever it is that you want, I want to be involved in. In some ways, Yes, but we got to see ourselves first as the beloved of God. Can I say it this way? You will never serve God rightly until you are first related to God rightly. We will never have the right attitude, that one in which we can come and bow the knee of submission to him, and we can rightly say, yes, I call you Lord. We will not do this in its right context until we first accept the ring placed on our finger and see him as our lover, the lover of our soul. Until I understand that this right here is not an instruction manual for kingdom living, but rather is a guide to let me know who he is and what he does. This is an invitation to get to know him. This is him speaking to me. Until I see it in that way, I will never serve him rightly. We can call him master, but he doesn't want to be a slave master. He wants to be one who saw themselves in, in light of who God was, and, and they voluntarily said, will you please make me your slave? And so they would take an awl and put it through their ear. They wear this earring saying, I belong to you because you've been so good to me. Is that what your walk with God looks like? Is it a relationship that you are pursuing with every fiber of your being? Or does your relationship with God look like in the morning? Eh, probably ought to read something. How about Jeremiah? You know, I probably ought to pray at some point because I know that should pray about something. He doesn't need the duty from you. He's just looking for a relationship with you. He'll take care of all the other stuff. I will betroth you in faithfulness and you will acknowledge the Lord. In that day, I will respond, declares the Lord. I will respond to the skies and they will respond to the earth, and the earth will respond to the grain, the new wine, the olive oil, and they will respond to Jezreel. I will plant her for myself in the land. I will show my love 
to the one I called not my loved one. I will say to those people, not my people, you are my people, and they will say, you are my God. It is this beautiful relationship of initiation and response. My friends, I'm telling you, God is initiating with you. And you have sensed it, many of you, for weeks and months now. For some of you, for years. He is initiated. He is calling. Are you going to respond to him? Finally, in the last few minutes, and what is the most, one of the most remarkable things I've read from one of these commentators Listen to what Donald Gray Barnhouse says um, about God. Who, who can explain the sanity of true love? Love is of God, and it is infinite. Love is sovereign. Love is apart from reason. Love exists for its own reasons. Love is not according to logic. Love is according to love. Thus it was with Hosea, for he was playing the part that God has played with you all your life and with me. Chapter 3, verse 1, the message writes it this way, Then God ordered me, start all over, love your wife again. Your wife who's in bed with her latest boyfriend, your cheating wife, love her the way I, God, love the Israelite people, even as they flirt and party with every God that takes their fancy. Go after her. So he gives him the salvation speech, and then he tells Hosea, to go after his bride. And so Hosea goes after her. How does he go after her? So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and about a homer and lethic of barley. He did what? He bought his wife. <laughs> well, I thought he already bought her with a ring. Things are expensive. She had sold herself. And so now he takes money, gives to somebody who is not the rightful owner in order to buy her back. Interesting little side note here. I don't want to take this too far, but the amount of money that he describes here in these two things with this barley and with this, it was 30 pieces of silver. For 30 pieces of silver, he bought his bride. He then tells her, you're to live with me many days, and there's going to be some time in which we are not going to be intimate with one another. And why does this happen? This is not a prescription of what should happen with every marriage that, that, that um, is, is in this condition. It's not that. It, it, this is what God is describing. It took place because... His people were going to go some time without there being a temple, without there being a place of worship. God was going to rebuild that, but there was going to be a time in which they would not have that. So that's what he's trying to get across to his people. And he's going to tell her, please, don't, don't, don't give yourself to other men. I think everything that you need that God intends you to have is right here with me. I want to close with just a couple of questions of application for, for us this morning, a, a statement and, and a couple of pieces of uh, application. Before we will love like this, 
we must first be loved like this. In order to love with the kind of love that God supernaturally gave to Hosea, in order to love like God loves, in other words, we have to first be loved like this. It is going to be very, very difficult to pass on to someone else a deep measure of grace and mercy and forgiveness if we don't sense that we have been given grace and mercy and forgiveness. See, a part of what I wonder went on with, with, um, with Gomer, and I wonder, I wonder part of what went on is that she just never felt as though she was worthy of being loved. I wonder if she was far more comfortable with the thought of being used and judged rather than being loved and cherished. And there are many of us that can see why it is that God would judge us, but we can't fathom why it is that he would cherish us. It's easier. It will be easier when we can both see it in action and when we can hear it from him. In order to love like this, we must first be loved like this. I want to encourage you to try to do two things this very week. Number one, respond to and pursue the person of Christ. Respond to and pursue the person of Christ. This week, would you map out somewhat of a schedule as you read your way through Hosea? Maybe you want to read through the Psalms, something else. Um, I don't want to just limit you to Hosea. I want to keep encouraging you to read Hosea. Um, but, but when you read the Word, would you use it as a time in which you're going to try to say, God, I want to hear from you this week. And so, Lord, would you speak to me? Pursue the person as you read the Scriptures. Don't just look for some type of instruction for living. Respond to and pursue him. And then secondly, practice gratitude to God this week for his faithfulness. Here's an easy way to do that. Would you start in just the last year, and would you make a list at some point this week, make a list this last year of all the ways that God has been faithful to you. How has he provided for you? How has he provided for you materially? How has he provided for you relationally? How has he provided for you monetarily? How has he provided for you spiritually? Whatever. How has God provided for you? Make a list of that. And then pray through that list saying, God, thanks. Respond to and pursue God. Practice gratitude to God for his faithfulness. We pick up next week on some chapters as uh, we, we hear furthermore about this is not the only time that she's going to leave him and he's going to pursue her. The plot, in essence, will, uh, will thicken. Love, my friends, is experienced through word and deed.